Uh, We're right at the climax of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15, and I'd invite you to go ahead and turn there if you'd like, as we get a sample of this packed, loaded, deep chapter today. This is the chapter that includes the crucifixion of Jesus. As I first read chapter 15, obviously it's an extremely familiar passage for several reasons. Uh, First of all, the crucifixion is really the linchpin of the gospel. It's the whole thing. It's the the key to it all. And to be frank, if you don't know why Jesus died on the cross, if you don't believe that he did, you cannot be saved. So it is an extremely important part of what we believe and who we are. Uh, Therefore, everybody here, if you're a Christian, you have to know this story a little bit. Doesn't mean you know every single detail, but you have to know this story. Now, in addition to being in all four Gospels, the crucifixion is repeated throughout the New Testament. It's retold and preached and explained in the book of Acts and the letters of Paul and Peter and John. This is not hard to find in the New Testament. If you've ever read the New Testament, this story in some way is present. Now, not only... uh, This, but this story is known outside the Bible. In popular culture, it's known. The Passion of the Christ. How many of us have seen that movie? Be honest. Okay. All y'all saw an R-rated movie. I'm ashamed of each and every one. I'm just kidding. I saw it too. Uh, It's a 2004 movie by Mel Gibson. It brought in $612 million, so somebody saw it on a $30 million budget. A huge success for an R-rated Christian movie with subtitles in Aramaic, right? This kind of success at the box office, just to give you an idea, is somewhere around the level of what Ant-Man brought in. So it's like that lower level of the Marvel movies. You know, it's, uh, nobody really wants Ant-Man. We can, it's okay. I'm sorry, sorry. I didn't mean it. It's the wasp that we don't need. Okay, so we, we reminded that People wear crosses as jewelry. I mean, many of you probably have uh, a, a cross in some way or perhaps as artwork in your home hanging somewhere in your house. Uh, if you ask unbelievers to name one thing about Jesus, they would likely say he died on a cross. That's, that's known. It's not an unknown story in our culture. However, there is a level of depth to the cross that is often unknown to even Christians who are hoping in and depending on the cross for our very salvation. When we say something is deep, let's think about that word. If, you, if you've ever said, man, that's deep, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Not like the Marianas Trench. Now, that's deep. But I mean something in conversation, like profound, something that's heavy content. What's the essence of something being deep? Well, the idea comes from water, so that's where the idea comes from, but the idea is that you get further away from the surface level, the deeper it gets. Um, There's more going on in what's being said or described or taught than what is right at the surface level. So if I said, Jared is preaching a sermon right now, well, that's surface level. There's nothing beyond that. There's no allegory. There's no metaphor. There's nothing else. That's it. Surface level. But sometimes you're saying more than what you're saying. Uh, This is where we get satire. It's where we get comedy, irony, foreshadowing. If you've ever said something to somebody and then winked after, oh yeah, I'll see you later. You just said two things, right? You know, there's, that's, that's what the, the essence of the wink is. Poetry is often meant to be deep, to stir up creativity. Uh, 
Certain phrases and lines can almost take you right there to two different meanings just in what's said. I think of the Dylan Thomas uh, poem. You might have heard this in Batman if you're not a poet. This is where you heard it from. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Well, that's a powerful line. It makes you think about death and resistance to it and going out with a bang. Maybe you remember William Shakespeare who wrote, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Well, I know most of y'all are in the fields having a picnic with someone you love in your mind right now, just because I read that out loud. Maybe the line Robert Frost wrote, Two roads diverged in a wood. I took the one less traveled by that has made all the difference. And you think about all the various crossroads and forks in the roads of life that one could take. When something is deep or it's loaded, often it's a single moment that captures multiple meanings at varying levels of significance. Like, uh, like a great poem, there's a surface level, but then there's a second and a third. And if you're watching Inception, a twelfth and a fifteenth. And the more levels there are, the deeper it feels. So when we talk about the crucifixion, which is what we're here for today, the final hours of his life, I would say that these are perhaps the most loaded moments in human history. So much is happening beyond just the surface level of Jesus was crucified. And unlike poems, the crucifixion is a literal historical event that took place in the first century. And more important than a poem, the goal is not simply an exercise in creativity, but to worship God with our hearts and minds. And boy, did the Holy Spirit write in enough for us to do that today. Today's message is entitled, His Life for Mine. I hope to show you three levels of depth on the cross, wherein Jesus gives us a gift at his own expense. So before we look at the text, pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the gathering of saints today that's here for one purpose, and that is to lift high your name, to be edified by your word, to worship you. Lord, I, I pray that we would do that. Lord, take these texts, illuminate them, open our minds and hearts to hear. Lord, I pray for the one today who has never called out on you in faith and sits under their guilt and shame right now. And Lord, that they would turn everything over to you, that they would repent and follow after you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're reminded that a lot has happened since last Sunday's message in chapter 14. The Last Supper happened. Uh, Judas betrayed Jesus. That happened. They went out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was arrested. That happened. Uh, they took Jesus off to the Jewish trial where he was uh, at a blasphemy trial, basically, and they condemned him because he admitted to being the Christ. Outside this very hearing, Peter was somewhere in the courtyard and denied Jesus three times. So a lot has happened. And chapter 15 begins, Jesus is brought before Pilate, who is the Roman leader over Judea. Pilate gives the people an out. This is another thing I could have preached today. He gives the people an out to choose a criminal rather than Jesus. What was his name? 
Barabbas, and they chose Barabbas to be released. They began shouting, crucify him about Jesus. Pilate ordered Jesus to be scourged, which if you've seen the movie, you know exactly what that is. It's much worse than a whipping and um, with a torture instrument. At this point forward in the text, this is where we're going to jump in. Jesus is in the Roman system of crucifixion. And the order is given in verse 15 of chapter 15. Now, normally I like to preach where I read a little bit and talk and read a little bit and talk and kind of delay the, the reveal until the end. Um, I today would like to read the whole passage because I just don't want to break it up. So I'm going to read now for you Mark 15, 16 through 39. This is perhaps the most important chapter in the Bible alongside the resurrection. Mark 15, 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw, that, saw in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. We'll stop there. Mark's account of the crucifixion may be the darkest, most lonely portrayal of it amongst the gospel writers. Unlike John's gospel, wherein Jesus is speaking more frequently from the cross, that's where usually the sermons called Jesus cries from the cross, those are not found in Mark. Unlike Luke's gospel that gives us that little silver lining of the thief on the cross, some redemption in the darkness, uh, Mark and Matthew really camp out in that darkness. 
And so what I want to show you today in this text are three ways that Jesus endured something terrible, but at the very same time gives to us something wonderful. Through his pain, we receive gain, his life for mine. And the way I want to do this is to show you that each of these themes is rooted in an Old Testament concept that makes you go deeper into what was happening on the cross. I want to give you three ways to load deeper meaning into this text, okay? So the first one that we're going to see is that Jesus was, number one, cursed so we could be blessed. Jesus was cursed so we could be blessed. Now, if you're saying, I don't see anywhere in here where we just read that said Jesus was accursed, well, go back uh, to the idea that I mentioned about multiple themes happening at the same time. So, in Galatians 3, I would invite you to turn there. Galatians 3. Paul begins to tell the Galatian church, who is at that time struggling with law-keeping, that's their struggle, law-keeping, that everyone who relies on living by the law to save them are under a curse. Okay, that's the theme of Galatians. And what he meant by this is that you're trying to do something that can't be done. You're living your life perfectly to try to keep the Old Testament law, and the law can only tell you that you've messed up. Now, we know this. You, you uh, get caught speeding. Well, that doesn't help you do anything. It just tells you that you were speeding. If you run a stop sign, all that you know is that you broke the law. It doesn't provide any goodness to you. It just takes from you. It can identify your sins. It cannot remove them. Therefore, the law, when depended upon for salvation, is actually a curse to you. So Paul writes then in Galatians 3.13 the following. 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What is Paul talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, they thought in categories of blessings and curses. Blessings are the good things, the benefits that happen to you as a result of obeying God. Curses are the divine condemnations that come as a result of disobeying God. To be cursed in a biblical sense was to have the wrath of God sitting on you, to have the negative results of your sin chasing you down because of your disobedience. Lying in the filth of your own mess was an Old Testament way to think of a curse. Now, here's where it gets a little technical. The Jews' primary method of capital punishment was what? Who said it? Stoning. That's right. They were not crucifiers. That was Romans' things. Uh, right now in our country, I believe the number one method for capital punishment is lethal injection. I could be wrong, but I think that's correct. Um, the Jews were more like the firing squad. That's, what, that's the ancient... The ancient firing squad was stoning. Now, there were times when the nature of a crime was so heinous or upsetting that after putting the Jewish criminal to death by stoning, they would then hang the dead body from a tree as a public statement of additional condemnation and of shame and as a deterrent to anyone who would do this crime again. 
We know this because Deuteronomy, the passage which Paul is quoting from, commanded that the Israelites not leave a body hanging on a tree overnight because it would defile the land. The law says a hanged man is under a curse from God. The Jews liked to bury their dead quickly. They didn't mess around with dead bodies. It was unclean to them. They didn't like to do public nakedness. It wasn't their thing. They didn't do big shameful displays. The idea of a dead man hanging on a tree was as shameful as it got for Jews because it literally defiled the land. This is why they could not even leave the body out overnight. For their culture, this was the most cursed way to go out. And yet Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What does that mean? Jesus was crucified on a cross made of wood from a tree, hung up high as a punishment for criminals in order to heap shame upon him. He took on the shame of the darkest curse so that we could receive the blessings of eternal life. At the cross, we look to him hanging there and say, there's my shame for my sin. When we look at Jesus hanging on the cross, that sick, gut-wrenching feeling for the things that you've done in your life, the feeling of wanting to cover up that thing that you know you've done, hide those things, that panicked feeling that you might be exposed, Those things are curses that accompany disobedience in life. Those things are what people who have no Savior ought to feel over their sin. But not you, Christian. Not you. Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The curses are gone when you believe on Christ. Removed. Transferred. The shame is gone when you believe. You don't have to metaphorically hang there in the tree of nakedness and death and condemnation and shame any longer when you believe in Christ because Jesus literally hung there on the tree for you. That is the first deeper meaning that we see, wherein Jesus endured something terrible, but we get something wonderful. He was cursed so that we can be blessed. Next, he was, number two, cut off so that we could be brought near. He was cut off so that we could be brought near. If you go back through Mark 15, one of the major themes, this is what I picked up in in Mark's reading was loneliness. Certainly Jesus was surrounded by people. There were soldiers and crowds, and he was crucified between two people. However, that feeling of being betrayed by your people, handed over to the Romans, hung up to die, must have been an agonizing loneliness. Perhaps one of the lines, the only one, actually, that Jesus speaks in Mark's gospel from his mouth on the cross, has actually sparked confusion. And it focuses on that theme of loneliness. Look at Mark 15, 34. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's Aramaic, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, even critics of the Bible admit that this is a strong statement to support the authenticity of Scripture. If Mark were crafting a fake gospel to make Jesus look like a hero that he was not, you certainly wouldn't include this strange line. Therefore, even critics who deny the Bible will agree Jesus definitely said this because there's no reason else for it to be there. But what does it mean? Is Jesus questioning his faith? Is that even possible? It seems strange, doesn't it, for what we read of him in the Gospels? Well, there's really two meanings behind this shout of agony from the cross. The first, in a moment of anguish, Jesus did what we often do. When you're really down, really low, don't sometimes you play a song, sing one of those sad breakup songs when you're real down, when you've been hurt, you sing the blues, you know what I mean? You go to the old 90s R&B and cry like we used to. No, Jesus was singing a song that captured the pain he was enduring. And you're like, what song? What, what song? Turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. This is a psalm written by King David in one of the times of his darkness. Feeling far from God, on the run, with his enemies truly closing in on him. And when you get there, as long as you don't have a weird translation, somebody shout out, what is the first line of Psalm 22, verse 1? You got it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hmm. Jesus is singing Psalm 22 on the cross as his experience mirrors the experience of David. In fact, there's more than a handful of similarities between what Jesus endured there on the cross with David's psalm. In Psalm 22, we see David write in verse 6, I am scorned by mankind, despised by people. All who see me mock me. Was not Jesus scorned, despised, and mocked? In verse 14, David writes, I'm poured out like water, my bones are out of joint, my heart like wax, my strength dried up, my tongue sticks to my jaw. During crucifixion, often the shoulders go out of joint from hanging there, as well as the heart swelling under immense stress. Also, Jesus cried out in John's gospel, I thirst, because his tongue stuck to his jaw, and he drank the sour wine. In verse 16, he writes, dogs encompass me. Now, Jews often called the Gentiles, what? Dogs. And Jesus was surrounded by Roman soldiers. Also in verse 16, he writes, David writes, they have pierced my hands and feet. Well, that's a little on the nose, isn't it? Verse 17, David writes, I can count all my bones. Interestingly enough, Jesus died on the cross before his bones were broken to speed up the process. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Well, didn't we just read that the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothing? 
And if all of this seems like a coincidence to you, you got problems. No, if all of this seems like just a coincidence to you and you're still on the fence, I got one more for you that'll really nail it home. Not only did Jesus shout the first line of Psalm 22, but John's gospel records that he actually shouted the last line. Look at Psalm 22, 21 in your Bible. Now, it's not going to make sense right away, but what does your Bible say that last little phrase, the very last phrase of Psalm 22 is? Somebody say it. I heard he's answered me. Mine says, he has done it. How many of y'all have he has done it? Okay. He has performed it. That's right. You know what happens if you take that Hebrew phrase and you translate it into Greek? You know what that ends up saying? It is finished. Jesus sang not only the first line, but the last line of that song as well. So that's the biblical, historical answer to why Jesus said, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the textual answer. Here's a theological answer. We know that Jesus never once sinned. You agree with that? Okay. He was the perfect spotless lamb, never in thought or deed did he break a law of God. Because of this, he had an unbroken relationship with God the Father. Let me ask a question just for, for our pondering. Can you imagine your prayer life if you had never sinned before? Hmm. You really can't, can you? Just imagine what your walk with God would be like if you had never sinned. The only example in, in history that we can even grasp at would be Adam before the fall when God literally walked with him in the cool of the day in the garden. That kind of fellowship is what you would have. Isaiah 59.2 is very clear. Our sins create a separation between us and our God. He is holy and we are not. Sin keeps our relationship with him strained. And we know that on the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself, on his body. That was the whole point of the cross, was it not? That's what atonement is. He never committed a sin personally, but all your sins were downloaded, if you want a seminary word, imputed, imputed to him on the cross. The same way that Christ's righteousness gets imputed to you, see, we like that part, we get the goodies of Christ's life, the same way the opposite is true. The lifetime collection of your sin, past, present, and future, gets imputed to his body on the cross. And he took the sins of not just you and me, but everyone who would ever be saved downloaded their sins onto him as well. He who knew no sin, you know this, became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. The sinless son of God, for the first time, not just in his 33 years, but in eternity past, for the first time had the barrel of God's wrath pointed at him. The crushing weight of the sins of billions of people 
dumped upon him like the Hoover Dam breaking behind you. Never once had he related to God with sin in the mix. But as darkness covered the land, so did darkness cover his relationship with God. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was cut off so that you could be brought near. Instead of you being forsaken by God, shouting, God, why have you forsaken me? With sin separating you from him, you get to boldly approach the throne of his grace. Ephesians 2.13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All of the consequences of our sin, Jesus is systematically neutralizing piece by piece, one by one. Rather than have us be cut off by God for our sin, Jesus took that sin and had himself cut off. He absorbed the wrath of God that was due to us. So we have seen Jesus was cursed so that we could be blessed. He was cut off so that we could be brought near. And lastly, we will see number three, he was crushed so that we could be healed. He was crushed so that we could be healed. If you'd like to turn, I'm going to be looking at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, a classic passage of the faith. This was a prophecy written by Isaiah centuries before Christ. It describes salvation coming to Israel, but delivered by one who would suffer to get there. The suffering servant is what Isaiah 53 is about. And in light of the cross, it becomes very clear who this psalm, or excuse me, this prophecy of Isaiah is talking about. I want to point you to these highlights. So we're going to look at Isaiah 53, 3 through 6. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. To stick with the theme of the day, it certainly seems, again, like Jesus takes all the pain and we get all the gain. Verse 5 has that word, he was crushed for our iniquities. He received the wounds, we received the healing. He was chastised, we got peace. We are the sinners, he was the one pierced and crushed. And now in the same chapter, now my ears perk up when I see the same word show up twice, okay? In the same chapter, look down at verse 10. Well, it may be tempting to think that this crushing, piercing, smiting affliction came at the hands of the Romans or the Jews or even you and me. 
This tells us a different story. Isaiah 53.10 shows us the shocking truth. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Jesus was crushed, not by the Romans or the Jews, not by a bad justice system, not by happenstance, and not by you. No, God is ultimately responsible for crushing his son. And now we ask why. Why would God do this? Well, verse 6 has already told us. We are the sheep that have gone astray. We have turned to our own ways. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, our holy God must crush sin. It is his nature. He is anti-sin. You and I are sinners. We sin because we're sinners, and we're sinners because we sin. So you can't get out of it either way you want to say it. And the crushing blow of God's holiness was going to come down upon you. The blade in the hand of Abraham was lifted high, and we were in the crosshairs. But praise God for the ram caught in the thicket. Jesus was the substitute who was crushed for our iniquities. You see, the hand of God's judgment is heavy, and it will fall on all sin in this universe, and none will escape. And yet, God was not willing that you would perish. So he sent his son to be crushed by his own hand of judgment in your place. Jesus took that sin and the punishment that came with it. This is the cross in summary form. Jesus took all the pain and we got all the gain. He was cursed while we received the blessing of living without shame and sin. He was cut off from fellowship with God so that we could be brought near to him. He was crushed so that we could be healed. He tasted death so that we could have life. His life for mine. His life for mine. How could it ever be that he would die God's son would die to save a wretch like me. What love divine he gave his life for mine. So the question is, have you ever given Jesus your life? Have you received all of these wonderful blessings that we're talking about by faith? Because listen, Jesus already purchased the pain of the cross. Already did it. His sacrifice already been given. The inheritance of eternal life awaits anyone who would call upon his name, repent of their sin, and place their faith in him. All of the blessings of eternal life, all things in the spiritual places, they're all yours if you would just call on him and believe. Pray with me.